This expert insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 28th of February, 2018. The topic is early psychosis, recognition and management in primary care. On the panel we have Professor Anthony Harris, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney. Dr. Julia Lappin, Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. Alex Motti, a clinical psychologist, and Toma, lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. Um, so to kick off, Anthony, I want to check with you, um, how common is psychosis? How often are we likely to see this in our practices? Psychosis is quite a broad range of diagnoses. I mean, we think about psychosis being uh, part of perhaps uh, a first episode psychosis developing into a whole range of different possibilities. Sometimes it might be part of a bipolar disorder, sometimes it might be part of a, a substance-induced disorder. So there's quite a wide range of diagnostic uh, poss uh, possibilities there. It, uh, over a lifetime, uh, it pro probably about two to three out of a hundred people would have some sort of psychotic disorder. Uh, many of those would be quite uh, uh, short-lived. Uh, if we think about schizophrenia, about eight, uh, about uh, uh, eight in a thousand people, so just under one percent uh, of people uh, probably die, uh, are diagnosed with schizophrenia at some stage in their life. So it's not a huge number of the population, but two or three people out of a hundred—that's actually a lot of people when you think about all the people in, in, in Australia. So it's a, it's a significant illness. And just staying with that, um, Julia, you alluded to kind of there being different ages of onset. Can you speak to us a little bit about what to expect there? Yeah. yeah so actually it's been um, documented over many years of people studying psychosis onset that there are um, peaks in people's life when it's more likely to develop uh, a first psychotic episode. And for men, the peak age is around the early 20s, but you can continue to develop psychosis right on in your 30s, 40s, 50s. And for women, the peak age of first onset is later, so typically in the 30s. Uh, the, reason the reason I mention it, actually, is because I think it's really important for us to be aware that if someone comes to... Uh, an ED department or the GP practice with symptoms that feel and sound and seem like psychotic symptoms, that even if they're in their 30s and 40s, we shouldn't be saying, oh, well, they're a bit old, it's probably not that, it must be something else, because it can and does still happen to people at, at those ages. Um, early intervention services here in Australia have been designed to assist particularly young people who developed their first episode psychosis and that's for various reasons including the um, the idea that people who get psychosis early when they're at school before they develop relationships and so on are impacted more greatly by you know a, a difficult and chronic illness like psychosis uh, but in some places including in Victoria there are services where early intervention and psychosis is open to people of all ages with the first episode. 
Um, so I'm curious then, Tomo, for you, um, when did you, do you think you first started experiencing symptoms and what were some of the things that you or others around you noticed? Well, for me, I think it started when I was about 13. Um, I think it was drug-induced. I used to smoke a lot of marijuana for about a year and symptoms, the main one would be paranoia, which for me is a bit hard to explain, but I'm sure you've all heard maybe things like thinking people are following you and, and so on. And as the years progressed, you know, I started to develop depression and anxiety and different things like that. Um, but because I was mingling with the wrong crowd, it's, it's hard for them to say, oh, maybe you need to seek help. So I didn't notice that other people saw changes in me until I was in my 18s to 20s, and that was mainly from family. Um, just the you know, outbursts of anger towards family. Um, my, my brother's noticing something's different. I'm not the, my usual self. Um, Especially when, you know, I would be pretty high, you know. It it can sort of make you feel like a different person. Um, Also, again, linked to depression, very lonely. At points, I was very isolated most of the times for quite a few months. Um, But I think, yeah, definitely when when I realised myself was um, through family at the age of about 22... So there's that 10-year period, so it's, it's hard to explain when and where. But I think, for me, it was definitely when I was about 13, definitely um, noticing that, you know, things weren't right in my own thinking. Um, yeah, intrusive thoughts and things along those lines, I think, main symptoms. And so, Alex, if we've seen someone in our practice that we think may have first-episode psychosis, what are the key elements of an assessment? What are the things we should be on the lookout for um, to try and make that decision? Um, probably not best, considering who I'm up here with, I'm probably not best placed to answer this question, but just to, to speak to what's happening for Toma, I mean, meeting if you're sitting in front of someone that's describing all these experiences and, and this, I guess, a global decline in functioning and poor judgment and, and, um, and uh, you know, engaging in substance use, it, meeting that person where they are using the things they bring forward um, in their language, I think, is, is a vital way to try and draw out a bit more, you know, about what paranoia might mean for that person or what those symptomolo- what the symptomology actually is and then formulate um, within, you know, within a framework, like in this case psychosis. But I, I think to get a really clear picture, if you don't mind, I could hand over that way, because I think the, I really do think the expertise would be over that way. Julia or So psychosis, as um, Anthony said earlier, it's, a, it's an umbrella term that we use to describe uh, symptoms, well, illness that can then be subtyped into different types of psychotic illness like manic psychosis, depressive psychosis, schizophrenia, drug-induced psychosis. The, the framework that we work within at the moment, and I think it's the same in your service, Anthony, at, at the moment, is that when you're dealing with people who are experiencing psychotic uh, symptoms for the first time, we don't 
we don't spend too much time trying to work out which of those subtypes of psychosis it is because uh, in fact the important thing to understand is whether the person has psychotic symptoms, what they are, if they're distressing and how we can best help and in most cases that's to offer an antipsychotic treatment. If there are mood symptoms as well, there may be a place for an antidepressant or a mood stabiliser. But generally, once you've identified there are psychotic symptoms, then the first line of treatment is an antipsychotic, as long, as, as, alongside all the um, psychological interventions. So how do we determine if someone has a psychotic illness? Well, Typically, they'll have some, but not necessarily all, of a list of symptoms, which many of you will be familiar with. So, hearing voices, so we say auditory hallucinations, but in fact, you can have hallucinations in any of the senses. Auditory are the most common, then there's visual, you can have taste, so people might feel as if the food doesn't taste right and start only eating out of closed packets. Um, not eat food cooked by the family anymore, it doesn't taste right, and that might give rise to delusional ideas about being poisoned or the food being tampered with. Um, you can smell things, smell gas, smell rotting. Um, you can have a feeling that something's being done to, to the inside of your body that's not quite working right. Um, and, and some people, and I think this is, this is less well known, particularly people who've had a history of um, childhood abuse can have um, sort of the sense of a sort of sexual hallucination where they feel as if they're being interfered with, which is obviously deeply unpleasant. And these are the sort of things that may not come to light in first or second meeting with someone. So these are things that you explore gently. So that's the sort of hallucination type um, psychotic symptom and then in addition to that there's delusions which really are um, what we call fixed false beliefs that are often bizarre um, and often there's a persecutory or, or fearful flavour to those ideas so people feel as if they're being monitored or watched might feel that there's somehow a, a chip in their brain because people know what they're thinking but that they're being monitored with cameras but there are other, I mean, there are other types of delusions too. So in, in a manic type psychosis, you might see someone believing that they are the next Kerry Packer or Richard Branson and spending money on grand schemes based on those beliefs. Um, or in a depressive psychosis type picture, you might see someone who believes that their insides are rotting or that they're dead or that they're responsible for all the, the wars and conflict and, and um, hardship that there is in the world and that therefore the world's better off without them and therefore they should commit suicide. So these are how these odd beliefs drive people into behaviours which they otherwise wouldn't um, be doing. So pass over mm -hmm. now please. Yeah. Now as Julia was, was saying it, the assessment is a process which isn't, a, isn't, process, isn't what's off it, it goes for some time and um, uh, I like to think about it really from the point of view of, of, of the world of the person who, who is suffering these symptoms. So the, there, are, there are the symptoms that are affecting them in particular, and Julia's detailed uh, a lot of those, and they're very important. But the pattern of those symptoms over time will give you the diagnosis. So there's not much 
need to worry too much about the, the niceties of diagnosis first off. It's first episode psychosis. So you have the individual. You also have the family. So particularly for, uh, in my service, it's a youth service. Uh, both uh, the, the family is very important. The absence of a family is often even more important, of course. So what's happened to, uh, to create that disaster for, for, for that young person? Uh, to try and figure, uh, to place uh, the illness um, and the experiences of the young person in a context which is understandable by the family, uh, a family which out near Parramatta can come from a lot of different places and have a lot of different belief systems about what is uh, what the, uh, the, uh, their relative is experiencing. And then there's a, a broader context within the community, the society, the school, the university, the job, uh, the street, the, the drug supplier, whatever it might be that that young person it, uh, has, to see where they're up to from the point of view of their functioning. Because the services that we work with uh, are interested in, in helping from the point of view of the symptoms, but we're really interested in getting people back into a functioning life, into helping them recover you know, in, in a way which is useful for them. And so knowing the trajectory of where they're going gives a great, is also very helpful from the point of view of diagnosis, but it also helps us uh, with the aim of where we're heading, where are we trying to get back to. So um, the symptomatic uh, uh, assessment is, is really important. I, I would throw in some negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms and, and mood and, and anxiety because, uh, as, as uh, Thomas said, this is really uh, affecting from the point of view of mood and depression and, and it's highly anxiety-provoking. Uh, with all of this, all of these things going going wrong, uh, and and they those are the problems that actually bring people to care, is that they're depressed and they're frightened, um, uh, much more than the symptoms that we might be actually asking about. But what was your experience? Well, again, yeah, it took me a while to open up over time, seeing psychologists, especially because I was in the Kylo Center, so that was my first visit. So that environment um, was pretty scary, to be honest, and to be able to talk about what's going on for the first time, you know, it's, you, you can sort of, you know, be a bit on the spot. How do I explain what's just happened to me? But, but also, again, when the months go by, you know, things, things like did start to get better for me, um, and I learned more about what psychosis is and, you know, what's linked to it. And then from then I can, from there I could learn how to approach that. But, but again, like, for example, you mentioned anxiety. Like, yes, it's linked to, it can be linked to psychosis, but also the, the anxiety of um, how am I going to get back on my feet? How, how am I going to, you know, get to ba- basically functioning norm- normally again? So... Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's hard to open up personally about those things, especially when you don't know much about it. So, so again, I think having that support in place is key. And they, well, what I experienced through the psychologists that I saw was, you know, they were able to unpack things more, uh, giving me a, a broader um, understanding of what's going on internally. Because for someone like me, I can be pretty shy, and it's, and it's hard to open up about what's going on inside. 
but it, it's definitely important. It's it's definitely um, the for me personally, it was the start of my recovery, and I just took it one day at a time. Um, instead of um, getting overwhelmed, um, I just tried to do the best best I could. Um, you know, to get things started in the right direction. Okay, I think that's kind of what I was driving towards. That Soma sort of said that um, having an, an empathic approach and allowing a bit of a space in the assessment process, because you know, it, it, I'm sure we're going to get to insights at, at some point, but you know, insight can be really dictate how that assessment process will go. If someone's not ready to open up, or if someone at a certain level knows what they're saying is strange, they may not ever volunteer that information you know, and may not be ready. And we're quite fortunate in the early psychosis team in that we have a bit more time to do that. So it is a great great team from that perspective. But, but yeah, if you really can draw out that assessment process and don't jump to conclusions and really provide someone space to, to talk, it's really a great approach. Yeah. And maybe I'd sort of stay with you about that idea of insight that sometimes in the early phases you may be talking to someone who doesn't yet have a lot of understanding or insight to what's happening for them. How do you manage that therapeutically? How do you deal with that in your work? Um, well, it's, it's, it's massive. There's a lot of research, I think, um, from my colleagues down the end. There's a lot of research being done in um, insight being a predictor for illness course. Um, Duration of that lack of insight um, being, yeah, a definitely a definite predictor around severity and chronicity. Um, I think also in the assessment process, asking around conviction, so how much you that an individual might believe a certain delusion is, is really important because having, if you understand where I'm driving to, is if having a real 100%, I believe that, even putting it as a percentage, 100%, I believe that. That would be something very hard to shift, but it's also an indication of mental state um, um, of where they are. And I think you know we share a, a client where um, a young man who, who he might have um, he came to us with I guess a learning, he might have a learning delay, so he's not got a, quite a high baseline. But um, through that neurocognitive um, degeneration that happens with the process of the first episode, it, it's become quite hard to challenge him on anything um, and, and the lack of insight has really made working with him quite quite difficult. So um, I guess it is important to, to sort of find a way to access someone, find their language, really meet them where they are in terms of their language and, and try and um, access it as best as they can and then... Um, and, and Tim, I come back to you. Um, this idea of a prodrome is often put forward that you know certain practitioners should be on the lookout for a prodrome and should be jumping in and managing early. Um, can you speak to us a little bit about that? What are we looking for, and what do we need to do if we think someone's in a prodrome cycle? Yeah. Well, I think Toma uh, really described uh, a good part of the early stages of Toma, uh, of, a, of, a, of a prodrome. Um, sometimes um, uh, we talk about it, the people being at ultra-high risk or a, a, with an at-risk mental state. And, and this is a whole... This is a period of, of time um, before uh, the onset of, of frank psychotic symptoms that might drag somebody into an emergency department or into uh, into seeing a GP or one of the mental, you know, one of many of us in mental health teams, that 
really uh, said something's not quite right. Things are falling apart in, in, in small ways. So many of the symptoms that Julia talked about of, of uh, persecution, of feel, ideas of reference, feeling that the world is in some ways uh, referring back to them, feeling uh, unable to control one's destiny or one, uh, 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 the ideas of passivity, which uh, can, are very common. Those things are there in partial form. Uh, they come, they go, people have a certain amount of insight into what's happening, convince themselves that it's not really happening, but slowly, bit by bit, those symptoms build upon each other until people get uh, caught into a full psychotic uh, uh, syndrome. Now, that prodrome can go on for, uh, for a significant period of time uh, beforehand. Uh, years ago, when we looked at, uh, at young people coming into our uh, first episode psychosis services, uh, people were, had diagnosable psychotic symptoms uh, for an average of about nine months, medium was three months. That, so people were clearly psychotic for a long period of time before they came to services. But the prodrome went on for some people for uh, two, three, four years. Uh, and you could see this working as people dropped out of their role. They, their grades collapsed, uh, collapsed at school, or their work pattern uh, deteriorated, and they, and they were losing, they were losing their jobs. Uh, and and their relationships with their friends and family fell apart. Uh, often with arguments about the sort of stupid things that any family uh, argues about, but with a deleterious effect upon the quality of the relationships with those friends and family. And so you be began to see somebody who was more isolated and who was developing a, a full psychotic picture. So it's, a, it's not something that happens overnight, it happens with time. Um, uh, and so even for people with, uh, who develop bipolar disorder, often there's, we don't sometimes talk about it as a prodrome, but there's an extended period of mood disturbance which is there, uh, which uh, is expressed often as depressive episodes that might be an, uh, uh, severe enough to be called a major depression or something like that, but it's certainly there. Uh, so uh, this is a pattern which is frequently seen if you ask those questions. I might, I might just add how important early intervention is, like Anthony was saying, over time, yes, it built up. And for me personally, it built up to the point where I just said, I can't take it anymore. And that led to suicidal thoughts and things. So again, yeah, it, it, it takes little by little, but when it's, for me personally, it built up to that point. And that was very serious. I do not know where I would be if I didn't get that early intervention. So, yeah. You might talk for a minute about medication that's often part of, an important part of the treatment for psychosis and often there's a lot of side effects and often it's hard to get people to want to take the medication. So I might start with you, Tomo, mm -hmm. about what your experience of taking medication has been. And maybe for the rest of the panel, maybe some of the strategies you've developed to help people, to motivate them to be on medication. Um, what's the best way for us to help people persist with the treatment that's going to be helpful? Yes, so I first started um, taking medication when I was in Kylo, so that was basically compulsory. Um, to be honest, um, my experience with medication has been good. Um, no real side effects that affect my weight or my mood or anything. Um, 
But over those few years, um, I changed a few times of med- medication. I noticed improvements, but then those improvements didn't stay. So it wasn't I re- like I relapsed or anything. I, di- I just noticed that you know it, it would be working to a point, and then it would sort of fade away. So that's what led me to um, start taking clozapine. So I've been on clozapine for nearly two years now and I, I say it's helped, it's good um, definitely works for me um, but I'm at that stage where I'd like to try um, coming down from clozapine a bit just just to see how, how far back I can go Well medication is not our only treatment but it is the first line treatment for psychotic illness and there is evidence that people who are on treatment do better and if you stay on treatment uh, for around 12 months after the first episode and you're symptom free uh, you tend to have better outcomes long term than people who don't now we don't know that that's directly due to the treatment but maybe that the people who stay on treatment are a slightly different type of person more compliant maybe less unwell in the first place however that, that's as much as we know and so in our service um we have conversations with the young people about that because one of the first questions they want to know is how long do I have to be on this? Is it forever? And we say we hope not and then we explain and we try it for 12 months and then we'll have a gradual lowering of the dose to see how people manage and that's sort of what you're hoping to try at some point tomorrow now that you're feeling well and you're stable you're wondering can you manage with less? Maybe ultimately, can you manage without any? And and the, the way we the way we find out is just to test that trial. It, you know, regularly meet with the people. You know, make sure are they having any sort of re-emerging symptoms, any difficulties of the treatment. So it doesn't have to be forever. That's that's one important thing. Um, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but. I'll go with it anyway. There's two sort of groups of antipsychotics. It's sort of what were called the older generation and the newer generation. The older generation are treatments like haloperidol um, and the newer treatments are those like alanzapine or spiritomotiapine, which are much more commonly used now, particularly with young people. And there are side effects with both types. Um, with the older generation drugs like haloperidol and those in that family the problems that were really very characteristic of people um, the, the side effects were what we call extraparameter side effects so people would have um, difficulties with their joints being their muscles being sort of rigid and having too much tone and they walk oddly and they'd also have these sort of sort of spastic movements of their face and contortions of their hips and, and, and called tardive dyskinesia and it could be the case that once those were established you couldn't get rid of them and and those older generation treatments moved out of favour really for those reasons because some of those um, side effects were very obvious and somewhat stigmatising. The reason a lot of those patients did have those types of symptoms is because the drugs were used at very high dose 
you know, some people don't respond to treatment, so you just ramp up the dose. Actually, we know that that's not really going to help. What it does is it increases the likelihood of severe side effects. So that being said, the, 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 older, the older generation drugs sort of moved to the back of the cabinet and, and now we all use sort of new generation treatments, which have come with their own set of problems. And I'm sure you're, many of you will be aware of the high risk of weight gain, metabolic syndrome, physical health difficulties that come with the treatments like olanzapine, um, risperidone and clozapine also is a, is a big offender. Having said that, I am, I know Anthony is too, I, I am a, a big fan of having a trial on clozapine. Clozapine is our best treatment. It is reserved for people who don't respond to, to other treatments that have been given successively. You've had a good trial and a decent dose and you know the patient's been taking them but they just haven't got sufficiently better. And in that situation you'd offer clozapine uh, because it does give um, a greater chance of people um, getting remission of their symptoms. So part of the question was about how do you convince people to take something for a long period of time when they're either feeling well or they don't think they've got an illness. So that, that's, a, that's a big ask to try and ask, get people to, to take something which they, I think you've been very lucky, I must say, uh, because most people that I look after do complain about side effects. It's pretty much uh, part of the course. And they change from one medication to the ne next medication with the hope that the next one will have will be better. Sometimes it is, but they still usually have some sort of side effects of one sort or another. So uh, one of the other problems with this is that the way that our system looks after people, especially initially, like what happened to you. It's involuntary. It's people are dragged into a hospital and, and they're forcibly given medication. And the best way of getting out of hospital is to be very cooperative and say whatever the doctor <laughs> asks you to say in the most positive way until you get out. And so when people see you know, Alex or me or, or, or Julia, then that is a pattern which people tend to say, you know, tend to continue. They tend to say, Yes, of course I'm taking my medication. Um, no, not. And things, you know, medications stop too rapidly or things, things go astray. And so a really important thing to do is to build up that, that rapport, that therapeutic rapport in which uh, 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 they really do believe me when I say, you know, you're taking the medication. In the end, if you stop, that's your... That's your uh, uh, that's your decision you know, there might be CDOs and things like that but just tell me about it and then we can try and follow you and minimise the damage and catch things if things fall apart but it takes people who have been dragged into hospital a lot of trust to do that when they know that we might do that again and so that, 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 that rapport with yes I really am listening to them when they're complaining about whatever symptom or side effect that, that they're having and that I will try and do as much as I can to minimise that is really important because it's, it's, that's what it's all about. It's about their care. They're sort of, uh, they're, that's a patient-centred care approach uh, to a certain extent in which you're listening and trying minimising and adapting and talking to them. So these are, these are the choices that I'd recommend. These are the issues that might arise. Which is the one that's important to you? 
do you want to feel, uh, uh, run the risk of being perhaps a little bit agitated at the beginning, uh, but not feeling as hungry? Or do you really want to have that sleep at night? And is it more important for you to have a medication which might have a bit of sedation so you get your sleep every night? Of course, one of the other ways that medication is frequently given, antipsychotic medication, is by an injection, a depot, a long-lasting de depot. And that's, that's problematic. That's usually introduced in our system as, a, as part of a community treatment order in a voluntary way, and it's usually to young men who are wimpish about needles at the best of times. Uh, and when you're forcing them to have an injection, that's the, that's the one thing they're really clear they don't want to have. Um, but it's also you, you, a way of avoiding the arguments. You see this, see this time and time again in families in which uh, people are pursued. Have you taken your tablets tonight? Yes, Mum, I've taken tablets, just get off my back. And so this happens every night and you get these, 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 uh, uh, these arguments in, within the family, which are really destructive to the, mo the most important base for that, that young person. So there's, there are sort of, uh, uh, this is a conversation which goes on and which will recur uh, because uh, uh, you know, sometimes these symptoms recur. And finding the one that is least problematic and most effective takes a bit of time. Um, and so you have to be you have to be listening to that and, and working really hard at at, at uh, things like the weight gain, which the uh, Bondi group do fantastically from the point of view of, of making sure that people aren't putting on putting on weight, but anticipating some of the problems. The only other thing that I say is that there, there often is a difference between the medication that an inpatient usually, an inpatient unit uses and the one which people end up when they're in the community. So inpatients are under tremendous pressure and they're trying to get people contain difficult behaviours and get people out the door as quickly as possible. So they often, in my view, have a, have a bias towards quite sedating medication. That's, that's not a good way of getting back into things if you're feeling really sedated. And so we're left, I don't know whether Julia has this, but I'm often left with the, with the decision of taking people off something which keeps them uh, which has kept them quiet, uh, but that's not the way they want to live their life. Um, but the families get quite frightened sometimes because uh, that there's a whole lot of argument and, wo and worry that's recurring uh, when people become less sedated on different medication. So there are it's it's there's no great medication. There's no single thing which works for all people, and uh, being patient and trying trialing different things and swapping over. Is, is the way, yeah, but it is a dialogue. If, you, if, it, if, it's, if it's forced upon people, then the answer is it won't work for very long. So um, I find the most effective uh, strategy is usually there's some sort of goal, kind of like what Anthony was just saying here, of, of, uh, of, of getting into to life, some aspect of life that wasn't there before that they'd like to have back or like to drive towards. And they note that through the period of becoming unwell, that disappeared. And that, that I find, is, is often the hook. Like the, the young men we share, you know, going back to work for him was, was the hook. So if there's a way to utilise that and say, well, medication helps you stay out of hospital. Hospital is why 
and being in hospital is the time you're unwell. Being unwell gets you out of work. So getting back towards work, there's treatment for that and, and uh, using that as, as a hook and incentive to say, well, here's a way, here's a, here's a way to get back to something that you, that you wanted to um, early think in it. And it is kind of what we're saying, sort of like a, a care planning model. What is it that makes you unwell? Where's your, where's your long-term goal? Um, if we can work towards a level of functioning that, that a level of stability that makes sense, you know, then we can start reviewing medication. But yeah, it, and it, it, it's it's pretty hard. I mean, we have a few clients that are on a community treatment order and they're they're receiving injections and they don't think they're unwell and they don't want medication. Families get involved saying they shouldn't be on medication. You know, you've misdiagnosed, and there's so many complexities that, that we have to deal with and. We think it's in the best interest of the, the person, um, um, but really finding that in, I think to hit it home, I think finding that incentive of keeping someone engaged in their life, what they like about life, and um, playing playing off that as a reason to stay on treatment. One last question before I hand over to the audience, just staying with that, Alex. So we've, we've all talked a little bit about family. Mm. I'm interested. Family, you know. Obviously, have a big response to having their family member diagnosed with psychosis, and then are often in a position where they're giving a lot of support or doing some caring or involved in some way. I'm interested in your kind of insights about the best way to work with families. What are some of the things you've discovered that are helpful to assist families on this journey? Um, I think best practice in. Um, uh, first episode or, or even a, a, a more chronic psychotic illness is to have family and carers involved, there's no doubt. And we're quite fortunate um, at the early psychosis program to have a family social worker that dedicates this time to the family. And um, look, there's so many different ways we, you know, so many different ways you can engage um, family. I guess at its core, education is probably the best tool we have for a carer to, to educate and what to do and, and what it means and what it, what it could, how it could impact the lifespan. And, but I think it, it, we you really do need someone um, that's on the outside that can really, that, that's your advocate, um, to, to engage the person in, in um, getting well in treatment. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's... You, you, course you're going to come up against challenges I and mean, there's so much stigma around the psychosis um, diagnosis and um, demystifying those symptoms is, is vital and, and keeping you know I think I'll pass over to the doctors but, but, and even Thomas insights but, but just keeping an, a level of uh, openness and accountability and open dialogue around what the plan is and, and, and their involvement and the family and, and the person you're working with is, is I think and paramount to um, impacting um, that person to, to, to get back towards a functional sort of state. I think it's important to, to remember that treatment is not just medication. There's a whole realm of psychosocial interventions which are really important and um, uh, in, in getting people back to uh, a good recovery and which are very effective. And family therapy is one which... Uh, is, is important for many families if they're, if they're uh, uh, from the very basic family psychoeducation to just help people understand what has happened because often this is a process in which there have been lots of difficulties over a number of years to 
using models, and there are a number of models of effective family therapy, be they about uh, communication uh, problems or communication deviance or problem solving, or there are a number of effective evidence-based uh, methods of engaging people in family therapy, and they help those families significantly, but the, also they, they decrease the likelihood of relapse, and they help give a framework for support, ongoing support within that family. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is that the family are a huge resource to the individual and they carry a lot of the burden of the illness. Um, carers have a lot of undiagnosed difficulties themselves. It's not uncommon to hear of a mother giving up her job so that she can look after her son who really just can't function at home without someone being there or who she's frightened might do something to himself or just wander off if she's not around. Um, it's, it's also the case that carers you know, have a huge amount of emotional um, stress and strain and that impacts also on, on, their, on their physical health. Um, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in and I think Something that sets carers of people with psychosis slightly apart from carers of, of other difficult illnesses like, you know, childhood leukemia, and chronic diabetes, is that the stigma that exists around psychosis prevents neighbours, community members, work colleagues from asking about how's your son, how's your daughter. There just isn't that support in the same way that there might be for of another with, with an illness that people feel more able to talk about. And so they become these sort of silent, um, silent, very strained individuals who just want the best for their child and they've slightly lost sight of, of who their child is. And it's, it's very difficult and it's, it's actually, for me, it's one of the most fulfilling parts of the work that we do is working very closely with carers, supporting them helping them to understand that some of the behaviours of their son or daughter are driven by psychotic symptoms or some of the other symptoms, some of the other symptoms who didn't touch on the negative symptoms, so withdrawal from society, lack of interest in anything, lack of energy, lack of facial expression, all those things. They're not just the young person suddenly being a lazy, rude person child, it's, it's actually partly to do with the illness of educating about that and trying to help them as a family get to what we generally all want to do, which is get the best possible outcomes for the young person. Yeah, um, I have a mum and one brother here, and yeah, back when I was in Kylo and even before that, I had nothing to do with them at all, really hated them, not good relationship. And it actually turned out that them being in my life was one of the best things for me. Um, nowadays, we get along so well, like very close, and they helped me so much in my journey, visiting me in hospital, um, taking me out places. It, yeah, definitely back up that family was very important for me in my journey to recovery. I recently heard a talk from a professor, Nasrallah, who suggests giving long-acting injectable atypical antipsychotics directly after the first episode of psychosis. This was to prevent neurodegeneration that occurs after multiple episodes. 
It's my understanding that this is generally treated as last-line treatment. What is your opinion on this, or what is the Australian approach to this? Um, I'm not sure about his work, but uh, a South African uh, psychiatrist called Robin Emsley has also got very good work that demonstrates that if you keep people on a depot antipsychotic, they, they're much less likely to relapse. Unfortunately, most of my most of the people I look after really don't want to be on an injection, and so you know uh, that uh, that becomes a matter of of, uh, of quite a lot of debate. Uh, now there are a whole range of of depots, uh, some of which are now up to three months, uh, so that decreases the, the sort of that injection type thing. But there's no doubt that there's a real difficulty of its linking with community treatment orders and the way that we the way that it's talked about uh, and presented as as uh, as a as a forced option rather than just an alternative to the fact that most of us never take all the tablets that we're prescribed. I mean the ideal way to use a depot is if someone's agreeable to taking it for those reasons in much the same way as young women who want contraception sometimes want to have a, a one or three month um, depot in order to deliver that. <clears throat> but that's sadly quite rare. The depot is perceived as something which is quite punitive to have the sort of... There's also a certain lack of dignity with it. Um, I think we must be very, very careful about introducing depots at a very early stage in psychotic illness. The whole model that we work on is that you start, start low and go slow with antipsychotics. Um, so that uh, people who haven't been exposed to antipsychotics before are, this is an odd phrase, but they're said to be neuroleptic naive. And that means that their brain is going to be receptive to smaller doses of antipsychotic than with people who have been exposed to very large doses. And I think the problem with delivering a devil very early in treatment was that you may then establish a need to remain on that devil for, for a very long time. So relapse rates when you come off devil are high. And that may not just be as simple as the fact that they needed the treatment maybe that somehow the brain now needs the devil because it's always happening. And the other thing to say is that about one in eight people who have a first episode psychosis actually don't have any further episodes. So you would be, if you were to roll a devil out to every person, you would be exposing a significant number to treatment that they still need. So I think we must be careful. I mean, obviously we want people to stay well, but we also don't want psychiatry to be a model of enforced treatment. I wanted to, um, I actually want to ask a question myself for the doctors. So it's interesting that the, the point about a drug-induced psychosis and, and where that term sort of falls in. It's in, you know, it's in the DSM and, and, and it's a term that is used, but I guess for the doctors, is... Is that idea that drug-induced leading to a psychosis, is that a, a, a sort of an older idea now, or is it is it kind of that we had vulnerabilities and, and the stress of a drug sort of brought it out? I mean, that's kind of... I'm interested to know a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah. Um, so what causes psychosis? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, it, it's quite clear that 
you're having an inter uh, there's an interaction between uh, your biological vulnerability with what is happening in your environment. Now, uh, if I asked this room how many people have smoked dope, um, and then asked again how many people have experienced psychotic symptoms, there'd be a very big difference. And there has been quite a lot of interesting work about that which would suggest that there are certain genetic uh, variations in our, in our genome which predispose people smoking dope to developing that psychosis. Oh, I don't know whether Thomas got that. There's no, there's, no, um, there's no test about that. But seriously, people have thought about should there be genetic tests at raves? Should there be tests uh, to, to, to help people understand the risks that they're placing themselves in in, uh, in, uh, uh, in in using drugs. Now, I mean, I, I tend to think about substance-induced psychotic disorders in a slightly different way, that I think there's intoxications, and I think most people, if they try hard enough, can get intoxicated, sometimes very quickly if they use uh, speed or, or things like that. And the psychotic symptoms with that do tend, with an intoxication, do tend to, to go quite quickly. But if you have a, a vulnerability, then you're likely to develop that psychotic disorder. That, they are symptoms that are lasting for a number of weeks, despite some sort of intervention. And I suspect that in a 10 years, 20 years, when our understanding is better, then perhaps that is really just seen as a dimensional risk that that person has interacting with their environment, mm. whether that stress be lots of family arguments, whether that stress be immigration, whether that stress be too much speed. Uh, you know, that's just the risk that's interacting with, the, with the, the dice throw of your genetics. We all know early intervention is important, but Tomo, you mentioned you first started noticing early signs when you were 18 to 20 and doing drugs. Did you seek any help during this time? Should there be any structures in place for children or teens, and do you think the information was there? I think it's important to understand that um, the prodrome is sort of much more easy to recognise in hindsight once someone has gone on to develop a psychotic episode. There'll be many young people, in fact you sort of wonder are there any young people who aren't at some point going through difficult periods of anxiety and depression. That is much, much more common than... Uh, what turns out to be the prodrome for a psychotic episode because we know that psychosis isn't as common as anxiety and depression. So I suppose the question is, if you see a young person, if, for example, tomorrow you'd gone and seen a GP when you were 15 or 16, the difficult question is, is there anything that would have set your experiences slightly aside from the many young people who are having anxiety and depression and difficulties with adjustment and, and, and often substance use comes in there are lots of young people who use substances. And that's difficult and sometimes it's about the quality of the experience. So paranoia would be less common among anxiety and depression. If there's another odd idea or the odd hallucination, you know, 
walking down the street sometimes feels like someone um, is calling my name and turn around there's no one there. I hear people whispering in the leaves when I'm lying in my bed at night, that sort of thing. It's just not quite the same as anxiety depression. It's got a different flavour to it. And that's, I think, difficult, but that's what at-risk services try and do. They try and say, well, who among these many young people with difficulties are the ones that are perhaps somewhat more likely to go on to develop a first episode psychosis? And we'll look after them, and we won't give them antipsychotic treatment at this stage because that's not, that's not indicated. You don't get antipsychotic treatment until you tip into psychosis. And that means meeting criteria, which are having hallucinations and bizarre beliefs, um, acting on them, perhaps having um, the experience of your thoughts being interfered with, thoughts being put into your head, taken out of your head. So it's subtle, but, there, but, but what's less subtle is the difference between anxiety and depression and psychosis. So the prodrome is something in between. And in fact, we know that um, screening for people who have low-level symptoms so having an odd belief but being able to dismiss it, still having some insight, only holding it with maybe 50% conviction, or hearing voices but maybe only hearing it once a month, things like that, that's what we call attenuated symptoms, and that would be suggestive of a high-risk mental state. But probably only one in three of those people in studies internationally go on to develop a full-blown psychosis. So it's, it's difficult to predict psychosis. The advantage of monitoring it is that when, if, if someone does tip over into psychosis, you can treat because they're engaged, you can treat quickly. And that's been the big thrust of early intervention actually has been to reduce that nine month period of psychotic symptoms that Anthony was talking about earlier. The average length of time that someone's experiencing full blown psychotic symptoms before they get help. And that's really what we've been trying to do with early intervention. Get them into care quickly, treat them quickly, and stop their social and functional impairment. The other thing I'd, I'd add with that, uh, to that is that that group of young people who are having these part, uh, this prodrome or these at-risk mental state uh, symptoms are often quite distressed and quite impaired anyhow. So even if they don't develop a, um, uh, a psychotic illness, they're actually at very high risk of having a, a depressive illness or a significant anxiety disorder. And, and they've, uh, they're functioning um, uh, less well anyhow than their peers. So they're an important group to pick up just from the point of view of, of good clinical care, for, for in mental, uh, good clinical mental health care. So antidepressants are commonly used um, in the treatment of... Um, <coughs> mood and anxiety and in addition to that uh, there's often psychological interventions offered particularly cognitive behavioural therapy which is also a mainstay of treatment for psychosis um, and there's the focus of the cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT would be generally to help people manage their anxiety or their no mood or to challenge some of their own ideas or own beliefs. So for example if someone um, believes that their neighbours are spying on them 
you talk to them, you know, about well, how much do you believe it? Do you believe it, do you believe it 100%? Do you believe it every day? Or do you only believe it for five minutes when you see the curtain being drawn as you look out your window? And that's the type of psychological work that has got an evidence base in psychosis and in the at-risk state. Um, as a psychologist, I probably underscore that, yeah, you're looking at someone with, uh, they're showing signs and symptoms that are synonymous with distress. You know, they're, they're in a distress state. So um, that's often, whether it's FEP, UHR, that's often where I begin the practice. So you, you want to obviously challenge and you want to use CBT, but validating that distress and validating that they're in a situation of distress is, is so vital in changing um, in, in, well, not necessarily changing, but impacting illness course and development from the prodrome. It's something that we have as a mainstay, and, and I think um, I think giving someone that space, as I sort of said at the start, giving someone that space and, and validating it and meeting them where they are in their journey is just um, vital. Outside of medication, what do you think helped you the most, Toma, with your recovery? That's a good question. I, I did mention I have hobbies. Um, obviously, like to stay active. Um, but one one thing that does stand out for me was um, I came to faith. Um, I grew up in a Jewish background, and I sort of abandoned that through those years, and you know, didn't believe in anything. But it wasn't until I started going to Bible studies out of curiosity. Um, just asking those questions relating to me and God and things, and just finding community really within within that area of faith. Um, started going to church, making new friends because I, for a period, I had no friends because I decided to detach myself from those bad influences. And you know, the, it 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 really helped me um, open up. Um, just things like reading the Bible, um, you know, going to different events, doesn't have to be church. But yeah, definitely, that is, that is one of the main things, um, and I'm glad you asked that question. Can you comment on how to assess and differentiate odd ideas or beliefs and thoughts in comparison between OCD and psychosis? So when we look at the long-term outcome of people with psychotic illness, the best predictor is actually two domains of negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms. Uh, so, and cognitive symptoms probably are more important than even the negative symptoms. So by cognition, I mean uh, neurocognition, memory skills, attention, concentration, executive planning, and social cognition. So the ability to, to, uh, uh, to recognise emotions, to, to be able to walk in somebody else's shoes, to be able to uh, understand the attribution that you might have for some sort of symptom is, is actually uh, perhaps uh, a psychotic one and to understand how that might have come about. So we, we, uh, uh, we do use uh, that. We, as part of our workup, we do a neurocognitive evaluation for people with uh, a psychotic illness because we think that that's one of the building blocks that we, uh, that we use to determine the sort of mixture of treatments that, uh, that, we, uh, that we use. And um, we use cognitive remediation techniques and, and social cognitive remediation techniques and have done so in, uh, in my team for about 15 years. We've had a series of, of research projects. And they, ha and they hit different targets. So they, they're, they're very useful uh, 
uh, in a range of different uh, contexts. Just firstly, just bluntly, they're, they're useful in helping people restore uh, some of their attention and memory uh, and planning and, and restore the confidence that they can actually do that because you, we use lots of feedback and lots of computer games and things like that. And that, that really helps people get back into school or training or uni. But the social cognitive uh, treatments, which we've, we developed one set and threw it away and looked at another set, uh, they're, also real, they're also really important because not, there's another group of, of people with psychotic disorders who really struggle with interactions and, and they, they feel bullied at school because they, they don't understand the interactions that are happening around them. They don't understand the, the assumptions of, of, of a group. Uh, and they feel excluded, and often they are excluded. Uh, but, and that, they, uh, that undermines their ability to get into work uh, because they, uh, they don't understand the, the subtleties of, of, of what's happening. Um, and that training and, uh, and, and teaching doesn't make up for all of uh, the problems that they've got, but helps give a, a base on which you can build. And then having assessed it, you could also help teachers, you could also help the... Uh, the disability employment support workers says this is a weakness. This is something that that that, uh, uh, that this young person has, uh, and that you'll need to, if with their uh, with their permission, engage the workplace in sort of understanding that uh, he doesn't get some certain things, or there are certain parts of, the, of an interaction which he'll take personally because of residual persecutory ideas of one sort. So we do use that a lot. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.